Well, good evening, everyone. How are you all doing tonight? Thank you for coming this evening as we continue our study of Ecclesiastes. Let's bow before the Lord and ask his blessings on our time of worship tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you love us and care for us. Father, we just want to thank you for your love for the compassion that you have shown to us as sinners. Lord, tonight we just come desiring to fellowship together as your people, to learn from the wisdom of your word. And Lord, we just pray for your guidance tonight. We pray that your spirit would open our hearts and minds to receive your truth. Lord, help us to apply your word to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're continuing to walk through Ecclesiastes together, and we're looking at chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, moving into verses 1 through 11, the pursuit of pleasure. And what I wanted to do is just kind of give us a roadmap of where we've been, so kind of retracing our steps. The first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes is an introduction with the title, gives us the name Kohelet, he is king in Israel, in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 1, verse 2, we have really the key theme word for all of Ecclesiastes, this word hevel, which means something along the lines of uh, frustratingly enigmatic. It's empty, it's elusive, it's puzzling. And then verse 3 gives us kind of the controlling question for the whole book. And that is, where do we find the Hebrew word yitron? which is, uh, can be translated gain, profit, advantage. Where do we find this? Can we find it in this world under the sun? That's his overriding question that is uh, guiding his pursuit. And then in chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, we have an introductory poem just about life's complexities and questions and the fact that it's enigmatic, it's confusing at times. And then last week, uh, we began to look at kind of the first main section of Ecclesiastes, which is kind of like the first um, investigation, if you will. And he begins to look at different life situations and look at those individually to see, can we find yitron, gain, profit, advantage here? Can we find it here in this? And um, chapter one through chapter two is focused on primarily on wisdom and human achievement. And last week we looked at the pursuit of wisdom. Can you find ultimate gain, ultimate profit in pursuing wisdom? And we looked at it and we came to the conclusion that wisdom is good. Wisdom is good to pursue and it is valuable to have. And as we learn from Proverbs, it is um, the way in which we walk before the Lord in fear before him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom is valuable, but if you're pursuing wisdom as the end goal, you're pursuing wisdom for wisdom's sake, then ultimately you're gonna be uh, left feeling disappointed. It's not going to answer that ultimate question of where can we find this life's meaning? 
gain, profit, advantage. Tonight, we're looking at the next quest in his pursuit, which is the pursuit of pleasure. So if wisdom, that in and of itself, doesn't give us ultimate profit or meaning, what about pleasure? He's kind of looking at what people pursue in life. All kinds of people pursue pleasure, right? Well, maybe there's something to be found there in pleasure. And so he investigates that. And I think in particular, this passage of Ecclesiastes really speaks to the brokenness and the emptiness, the confusion of our world. Especially in modern American society, we have so many conveniences, we have so many pleasures, we have so much wealth in this country, and yet still people have not found what they're looking for, have not found that ultimate answer to life's meaning or quest. And he addresses that in this passage. So the pursuit of pleasure. So he says in verse number one, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. And that word test kind of gives us a clue in reminding us that what Solomon is doing here in this pursuit of pleasure is it's part of an experiment, if you will. It's part of a study in which he is going down this road for a while to see what it leads to. All the while doing this from a bigger perspective of wisdom and of trying to answer this ultimate question, where's gain, where's profit? So some of the things that we're gonna read in the next few verses seem like Solomon has totally given himself over to hedonism, to pleasure, to desire. But he's, remember, he's doing this as a part of his study, as a part of his investigation. So it's part of it is he is looking at these things and engaging in some of these activities but he's, he's doing it in somewhat of uh, a scientific manner, if you will, of looking at these different areas of life. So he says, I'm gonna test you with pleasure. This word pleasure uh, is a Hebrew word, simcha, which basically means joy or jubilation. And I want, I want us to know that this word in and of itself carries no negative connotation in scripture. There are many, many places in scripture where we are, um, where God's people are engaged in joy, joy before God, joy in praise and worship before God, joy, joy in um, uh, going, enjoying God's gifts that he's given to us in creation. So the word in and of itself is not, does not have a negative connotation. He's pursuing that which will bring him joy, pleasure, to find out what is good. And that word good is going to show up all over the place in Ecclesiastes. And it's kind of a generic word for good in, in really the whole Bible. And it can really mean anything good. It can mean that which is morally good versus evil. 
but it can also mean good in the sense of beautiful, good in the sense of this is useful, um, good in the sense of this is pleasing or desirable. So it is good in a very wide general sense. And I think it's very closely related to this overriding question of where can we find gain, profit? Is this good for profit, for gain, as we seek this in the world? So is this profitable? Is this, um, give us um, what we're looking for, essentially. But he said that proved to be meaningless. So he's kind of giving us a foreshadowing, isn't he, of the end result of his quest, Hevel. Frustrating, enigmatic, elusive, empty. So he's showing us where this quest is going. He said in verse two, laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? Laughter, it just means that. Laughter, having a good time. But he said it's madness. One way of understanding this word is in the sense of foolishness or senseless. And again, kind of going back to that question, can we find what life is all about, profit, gain, in laughter, joy and pleasure? He says, really, we can't, we can't. What does pleasure accomplish? It's that same word from verse number one, joy, jubilation. What does it really gain us? What does it accomplish? Uh, what does it do? What does it perform? What does it make? And again, what does it give us? What, is, what profit, what gain does pleasure or joy or laughter give us? He says in verse three, I tried cheering myself with wine. He's getting more specific now, isn't he? So verses one and two is kind of generic, if you will. The broad overriding category of I'm going to pursue pleasure to see if that's where we can find meaning and gain. Now he's getting more specific. What about wine? I see lots of people go to parties and they seem to be happy when they're at parties drinking wine. What about that? So I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Um, this Hebrew phrase here, I cheered myself with wine, it, more literally, kind of more woodenly, is I searched with my heart how to, even more literally, stretch out my body with wine, reviving, restoring, giving life, vigor, if you will. I searched with my heart, with my inner being, to try to re revive or restore my body with wine. Basically, he's using wine to try to give this word, pleasure, joy, to his body. Is this something that we can pursue for meaning in life? and embracing folly, literally to, to seize or to grasp, to take hold of folly. And remember back in chapter one, verse 17, he said something similar to this with the pursuit of wisdom. He said, then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. 
And if you remember that from last week or the last time we were together, we mentioned that in the pursuit of wisdom, it's an exhaustive pursuit that he engaged in. And he wanted to look at both sides of the coin. Wisdom as well as madness and folly. Well, he's kind of doing that here with pleasure as well. Uh, What are people finding in this? What are people gaining from this? I want to investigate this to see what's, what's going on. But notice, this is a controlled quest or experiment, isn't it? So back to verse 1, I set out to test. This, this, is a, this is a controlled quest or pursuit. He says this a couple of times in this paragraph, my mind still being guided by wisdom. So he's not completely giving himself over to hedonism. There's still a control if you will, on it. This is for the pursuit of knowing what's good, what's gain, what's profit in this world that God has given to us. So I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. There's that word good again, what's, what's useful, what's profitable, what's desirable for people to engage in under the heavens another way of saying under the sun, which is his common phrase for our finite human existence and reminds us that our lives are short, aren't they? Our days are numbered. So we have a limited finite number of days. We are finite creatures under the sun. What's good? What is there to engage and give our lives to in this world? So he's experimenting with pleasure. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. And so one way of understanding it is verses one through three is more along the lines of uh, pleasures, desires. So I'm gonna give myself to, to the pursuit of pleasure, finding joy, but first I'm gonna give it to pursuing pleasures, verses one through three. Then I'm going to give myself to activities or accomplishments. That's where verses four through six go to next. So he says in verse four, I took on great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. And a lot of what he says in the next several verses matches up very well with what we know of Solomon from first Kings. He was a wealthy king. He was a wise king and Under Solomon, Israel reached the largest amount of territory that it ever controlled in its history under Solomon. It was the wealthiest, it was the most expansive kingdom under Solomon. And then after Solomon, it divided, remember? So Solomon took what David had built and enlarged it even more. And he says here, I'm I'm engaging in in activity. Maybe I can, if I pour my life into doing stuff, accomplishing things, maybe I can find meaning or gain in that. So I took on all these projects. I built houses and planted vineyards. And uh, I'm engaging in all of these different areas of life to try to accomplish something, maybe make a name for myself in these accomplishments. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of trees in them. 
again, more stuff to do, right? More accomplishments. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. So um, I built these vineyards, got to have a way to water them. So I made these elaborate reservoirs and canals to bring in water so that these beautiful areas would be, um, would be beautiful and, and be watered. And some of the language here of verses four through six is very reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. So uh, the idea of a paradise, of, of a well-watered garden, it brings in some of that idea. Basically, he says, I, I tried to make something beautiful, something glorious, and I invested my time and effort into making something to the best of my ability. What does that get me? Does that get me ultimate gain, profit? Now, think about where we are so far in this passage and think about the two main areas that he's seeking to find pleasure in. We might say verses one through three is more about the senses, sensual pleasures, if you will. And verses four through six is more about our name, our, our pride. He says, I engaged in these things and a lot of our world looks to those things to find meaning, don't they? Sensual pleasures, what we can taste, what we can smell, what we can feel, what we can touch, what our body can experience. Well, what about uh, having a career and leaving a legacy, having a, having a name to be remembered? doing all these great things that people can be impressed with. People give their lives to that too. So Solomon's testing these things out. Verse seven, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. So if verses one through three is about joy and pleasure, four through six is about activity and accomplishment, then verses seven and eight are about wealth. Again, do people in our world pursue wealth for their own happiness? They do. He, he uh, explored that. He says, look at all this wealth that I had. I had so much wealth that I could acquire all of these servants and even have, the, when they had children, those servants became my servants. And I had this huge household of servants and I had enough wealth to provide for all of them. And I had all of these herds and flocks. And notice in this passage, um, just his wealth, all that he is able to acquire. And the fact that he has these herds and flocks, which was a sign of wealth in the ancient world. And notice the key words here, more than, right? More than. How much does that describe the American way of life? You've heard the phrase, it's kind of an American phrase, keeping up with the Joneses, right? There's this, there's this kind of built into the American dream mindset, this kind of competition that, well, if, the, if my neighbor gets a new car, then I've got to get a new car. And if, if my neighbor upgrades their house, I've got to upgrade my house and all this kind of stuff. And, and you can see that in his pursuit of wealth. I had more than all these other kings who were before me in Jerusalem. I amassed silver 
and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces, meaning that probably all of this wealth that was coming in was because of his superiority in the region and other kings and provinces were paying him tribute. And again, that reflects the days of Solomon as well, where Solomon had expanded the borders to all these neighboring areas and they were paying him tribute. So the, the coffers kept getting fuller. More silver, more gold. I acquired male and female singers to entertain him in his kingly court and a harem as well the delights of a man's heart. This last, uh, this phrase toward the end of verse eight, uh, and a harem as well, is an incredibly difficult phrase to translate um, in Hebrew. And um, the meaning of it is really uncertain. And one of the reasons why the meaning is uncertain is because it uses a word that is only found here in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 8. It's the only time it's used in the whole Bible. And so, um, and what it does is basically use it twice. Like um, in, the, in the Bible, we might come across a phrase, king of kings, lord of lords. That's essentially what this phrase is. It's this word, singular, this word, plural. The problem is we don't really know for certain what the word means. So you have the word twice, one singular, one plural, what does it mean? And so I'm just going to give you kind of a overview of some of the translations to show you all across the board what they do with this phrase. So you have the NIV, which says it's a harem. You have the New American Standard, ESV, Christian Standard Bible. Basically, concubine and concubines is the way they would understand it. The word meaning something along the lines of concubine. Um, the New English translation, a harem of beautiful concubines. But then you have the older translations like the King James, New King James, have musical instruments. That's pretty different, isn't it? Okay, is it, is it, a, is it a harem of concubines or is it musical instruments? The King James, um, you know, four or 500 years ago, they're probably making the translation based on context because they're, they're uncertain of the meaning of the word as well. So they're making the translation based on context and the closest thing in the context is male and female singers. So that's where they go to, to an uncertain word. They're gonna stay in context and say, this is probably some kind of unknown musical instrument that we don't know what it is. So that's, that's why they go that route. But then you have the Tanakh, which is a, a, a Jewish, a modern Jewish, um, translation of the Hebrew scriptures, and they translate it, they take the word to be something drawn from a root, out, which means like a chest or a coffer. So instead of concubine and concubines, they have a coffer and coffers full of them. Full of what? The delights of men, which they translate as the luxuries of the commoners. So coffers and coffers of them. Uh, the Septuagint, now just as a reminder, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Then even before the time of Jesus, say 100 to 200 years before Jesus, um, because 
Israel was ruled by Greeks and then the Romans, the Greek language became the dominant language of the area. And so they translated the Old Testament scriptures from Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek. And we have a lot of these uh, Greek manuscripts of the Old Testament. And what they do with this is they use a word uh, like a butler and female cupbearers. Again, something related to the king's court. Um, and this is another English translation of the Greek, uh, a cupbearer and pitchers. But then you have the Latin, which says goblets and pitchers in the service of pouring wine. So the Latin Vulgate, the Catholic tradition says this has to do with wine and the serving of wine. And then you have the Aramaic, which says these are public baths and bathhouses. <laughs> okay. It's a tough word. We don't know. The, basically what scholars have had to do is look at the three letters that this Hebrew word is and compare it to other languages in the ancient world like um, Arabic, Aramaic, um, Ugaritic, Akkadian languages that we've never even heard of before. And they look, they look to see what's the closest relationship between this word and those languages and maybe that'll give us some insight into what this word means. The best that we can come to, the, the, I guess you would say evangelical conservative consensus is that this is referring to concubines. And, but regardless of where we land on what this exactly means, in the context of verse number eight, it is basically describing, giving a specific of this, the delights of a man's heart. So however you want to understand it, whether it's coffers and coffers of money or whether it's concubines of a, you know, in a harem, however you want to understand it, the idea is I've accumulated all this to give me what my heart desires. And he says, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. So greater meaning this was an exhaustive or a superlative pursuit. We saw that last time with the pursuit of wisdom too. I gained all of this wisdom more than all those who are before me. Now he's saying with pleasure and the uh, amassing of wealth, I became greater than everyone before me. So it was a superlative pursuit. But again, making sure we understand this is a controlled pursuit, right? In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. So it was a superlative pursuit, better than everyone before me. It was a controlled pursuit, though, guided by wisdom, and it was an exhaustive pursuit. Basically, whatever I wanted to go after, I went after it to see if there is gain or profit in any of this. So it was an exhaustive pursuit. He says, my heart took delight in all my labor. Now this is important. He enjoyed the pursuit. It was an enjoyable pursuit. He says, while I was doing all of this, building all these great things and amassing all of this wealth, gauging all of this joy, it was enjoyable. And that's true, isn't it? 
is enjoyable, but it's limited, isn't it? It's, it's enjoyable for a time. It's enjoyable for a moment. It's enjoyable, but that, that joy has limits. It's finite. It runs out. And he says, this was the reward of my toil. So all of my work and labor and effort, that was its reward, was the enjoyment that I got while doing it. Well, what happens when you're done? See, a lot of people have a feeling of joy when they're at the party drinking wine. What happens the next morning? Hangover, right? Hangover, headache, sick to your stomach, miserable, and that feeling's gone, isn't it? The feeling's gone. I engage in all these building projects, and, and you've done this before, where you've been in the zone, if you will, you know, doing something that you really enjoy, and you just lose track of time, you're involved in it, you're engaged in it, you're enjoying it, but then when you're not doing it, you look on it, and you're like, what is the significance of this? What does this mean? That's kind of what he's saying here at the end of verse number 10. I enjoyed it while this was going on, but it was a limited reward. It, it didn't really answer the, the question of chapter 1, verse 3. Is there real gain, real profit in any of this? Graham Ogden in his commentary says, Pleasure provides an immediate sense of enjoyment. And Kohelet, the preacher, the teacher, he appreciates that. However, that is not all that he's looking for. And that shouldn't be all that we're looking for either as um, God-fearers, as believers in God. We're looking for something more than something that just is enjoyable for the moment. We're looking for something deeper, something more, uh, something longer lasting. And so he concludes in verse 11. This is his conclusion to the project, if you will, this, this um, avenue of pursuit. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And it's like here in verse 11, he takes all of these key words and phrases that we've talked about and he brings them all into verse 11. So he says it was meaningless. Here's that key word of chapter one, verse two, Hevel. It's empty, it's illusory, it's puzzling, confusing. So it is, um, it doesn't ultimately satisfy. A chasing after the wind, we've seen that before as well, and it's a common phrase throughout Ecclesiastes. You can't, you can't control the wind, can you? You can't ultimately catch it. So it's elusive, it evades you, and you can't master it. You can't move it where you want. It's, it's uncontrollable. So it's really an elusive or empty pursuit. So there was some enjoyment in it at the moment, but in the end, it was ultimately elusive and empty. Gain, the key question of chapter one, verse three, where is the gain that man gets from all his labor under the sun? Is there gain in the pursuit of pleasure? And he says, no, nothing was gained. So there's that word, yitron, profit or gain. Nothing was gained under the sun. 
in our limited, finite human experience. So what's his conclusion then from the pursuit of pleasure? As a result of his investigations, he determines that pleasure is ultimately Hevel, which is to say, it could not provide the yitron, the gain, the profit for which he was seeking. So, now does that mean that we take everything we own and throw it out? Does that mean that we can't enjoy um, fellowship with friends and the enjoyment we get from that? Does that mean that we shouldn't do a project and seek to accomplish something useful, worthwhile in this world? No, not at all. And that's one of the things I want to make sure we understand from Ecclesiastes is when, when he comes to the conclusions that he comes to in all these different pursuits in Ecclesiastes, he comes to a negative conclusion. But remember, that is in specific response to the question of chapter 1, verse 3. Is this ultimate gain or profit? His answer is no. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. So just like back in, in last time, chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, he says the pursuit of wisdom is ultimately heaven. Does that mean we shouldn't pursue wisdom? Well, God's word clearly says otherwise, right? Proverbs says pursue wisdom. With everything you have, pursue wisdom because it is worth more than rubies and gold. James tells us if you're lacking wisdom, ask God and he'll give you wisdom. So when he says at the end of his pursuit of wisdom, this is Hevel, he's not saying don't pursue wisdom. Just realize this in and of itself, if this is your end goal that you're striving your whole life for, it's not going to satisfy. Same thing here. Should we not build things? Should we not enjoy life? Should we not have any possessions? That's not what he's saying. But he's saying if you pursue that for its own sake, that's the end goal, that, that's the mark for which you're pressing toward, you're going to be left feeling empty when you get to the end. So he's not saying that these things are completely useless and they have no point and we shouldn't do them in this world. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they have value, but it's a limited value. They have joy, but it's a limited joy. They have purpose and use, but don't, don't make this the whole reason for your life. Don't make this the whole um, you know, uh, purpose of your existence for why you're here. If you invest everything in this, money and time and effort, and you're pursuing this to try to find what life is all about, you're going to miss it. There's something higher. There's something bigger that we've got to shoot for. So he keeps holding these things out and presenting them to us and saying, is there ultimate gain here? He's going to say no. But again, that's not because these things are completely useless, but because he wants us to set our sights on something higher, right? Something more significant. What's more significant than wisdom? The God who gives us wisdom. What's more significant than pleasure and wealth? The God who created everything that is and allows us to enjoy these things that he's gifted us with in this world. So there's, there's something higher and the something higher is ultimately God, isn't it? And he's above the sun. 
So uh, all of these life's pursuits, if you pursue them for their own sake, they're going to leave you feeling empty. Our pursuit needs to be to a, a longer goal, a, a more far off in the distance goal, something higher than the sun, higher than the heavens. That's what ultimately what he's pointing us to. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the way that you have um, showed us in your word tonight, just the, the limited value that wealth and accomplishments and pleasure are in this world. These are things that we can enjoy in the right way. These are things that you've given uh, to us to, um, to use our time and to seek to be a blessing to other people. But Lord, remind us that ultimately we're seeking something bigger. Lord, I pray that you would drive us to you. May the wisdom of your word draw us to yourself. Lord, thank you for this time that we've had. Continue to guide us as we walk through um, this um, important book of truth of Ecclesiastes. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.